Welcome to the Scott Ross Discipleship Podcast. Scott has been discipling men and women for more than 20 years and is passionate about helping you grow into the full measure of the maturity of Christ. Grab your Bible, something to write with, and your favorite warm beverage, and let's listen as Scott takes us deeper in our walk with God. So uh, we have a quick uh, diversion from uh, our normal uh, course real quickly, and then we're going to get back into pneumatology. Um, Sure, go ahead. You'll have to. (laughs) Sorry, my head will be in the way. It's all good. All good. Glad you guys are here. Thanks for sneaking into class. It's all good. I like how the cool kids, they take up the back row, and that way if you have to come in late, you've got to come up front, right? So it's all it's unlike school. Okay, so a uh, uh, funny thing is the person that I'm about to answer this question for isn't here today, but uh, Jackie posed a really interesting question in our Telegram, and I said I will get to it in class because the question was too uh, hard to answer simply in a telegram. And her question was about this passage in 1 John 5, 16, and 17, which probably unbeknownst to her, is among the more debated passages in the New Testament. And it reads as such, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. So we've got a whole bunch of questions that this could pose for us. We've got John introducing a concept of two kinds of sin, a sin that leads to death and a sin that doesn't lead to death. And he says, if you see a believer committing one of these sins that doesn't lead to death, you could pray for them and God can give them life. But if you see uh, someone committing a sin that leads to death, you don't necessarily need to pray about that part. So we've got this two sins idea here. And she asked the question in the Telegram group. She said, I thought all sin led to death, which is an understandable assumption if we look at what Scripture has said about the relationship between sin and death. Because God did say to Adam and Eve, that if they were to sin, it would lead to death, right? We saw that, or see that in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, where God warns them, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And then we all know the story. They eat of it. So what happens? God curses them. And one part of the curse we see in Genesis chapter 3 is, and he said to the man, because you listen to your wife, which men, this is a clear teaching in Scripture, to not listen to your wife. Isn't that what it says there? 
No, that's not what it says there. That would be very bad, bad uh, exegesis of Scripture. But because you listened to your wife when she was trying to take you away from me, is what we could say there, and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. That's another way of saying, you're now going to die. I took you out of the dust, and now you're going to go back to the dust when your life is over. We see this idea echoed throughout Scripture. The most famous passage probably is in Romans chapter 5, in which Paul is making the, um, or is teaching that Christ is the new Adam and that Christ has fulfilled all those things that Adam could not fulfill. And so in Romans chapter 5, he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sin. So here we see this direct connection between sin leads to death. So leading back to Jackie's question, what is this idea then in 1 John of a sin that can lead to death and a sin that doesn't lead to death and shouldn't all, doesn't all sin lead to death? And what's this whole thing about you pray for people who are sinning in a way that doesn't lead to death, but you don't necessarily need to pray for them if they're sinning in a way that does lead to death? Does anybody find this passage a little bit uh, confusing and, and qu create questions in your mind? Or is everybody like, yeah, I already knew this. I don't know why we're wasting time on this right now. The faces in the crowd are like, yeah, let's just get to the pneumatology stuff. <laughs> so let's go back to this passage. What we need to do, uh, and by the way, I'm going to just let you know at the outset that this is going to be a little bit like Inception. We're going to get all the way to the end, and then you're going to still debate about what the answer really was. Like, was he really dreaming, or had he left the dream? Will the top fall? Has everybody seen Inception in here? Okay, if you haven't, I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. Uh, it's, been, it's been 15 years, so I expected, you know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, so we want to get some context, though. What is the context of this? Well, the context is he's talking about um, praying. And if you go to the verses just above it, he says, This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have, we have what we have asked of him. And then it gets into this whole notion of, this, it's almost like this parenthetical thing of, you know, for instance, if you want to pray for a believer who's committing a sin that's not uh, going to lead to death, God can give them life. And it's this follow-on to the discussion of prayer. And so it's a very difficult passage. And it's been disputed for a long time, and it's going to continue to be disputed because John apparently believes that his listeners know what he's talking about. He doesn't make any effort at all to explain what he's talking about. So in his mind, it seems quite obvious to all the scholars who talk about this that there was this understanding amongst first century Christians of what he's referring to, and that understanding has apparently been lost to us because no one ever talked about it afterwards in any of the writings that we can find. And... Um, there, there is also a lot of scholarship that points out that in the rabbinical writings, so if you understand how Judaism worked at the time, 
the rabbis, the leading rabbis, wrote kind of these commentaries on the Old Testament, this ongoing kind of scholarship that they did where they interpreted the Torah, they interpreted the prophets, and their rabbinical teaching was almost considered on par with Scripture. And the rabbis had this idea of sins that lead to death. So that phrase already existed in rabbinical teaching. So there's three common ways that this is interpreted. There's more than three, but the most common three are, number one, that the phrase refers to a specific sin, that the phrase means apostasy, which apostasy is a big word for rejecting Christ, for turning away from Christ. You were a Christian and you say, nope, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore, and you go back the other direction. And the sin unto death is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, such as mentioned in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. So let's just look at these three individually. So a specific sin. In the Old Testament, there were sins that were called presumptuous sins or sins of the high hand. And these sins were sins that led to death. Adultery was a sin that led to death. Murder was a sin that led to death. Hey, it's the girl that I'm uh, answering her question for. Welcome, Jackie. You're going to probably want to sit there or maybe slide in to this row. Awesome. Thank you. So um, they were sins that were in direct rebellion against God, and there was no forgiveness of these sins in the Jewish sacrificial system. It's one of the reasons why when David in Psalm 51 says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great uh, compassion, blot out my transgression. This is a radical prayer because David had just committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband. These two sins were sins of the high hand. They were sins for which there was no forgiveness in the sacrificial system. And yet, he somehow understands something about God that other people didn't grasp yet, and that is that God has this mercy that he could bestow on him. And so he's asking to be an exception to this rule. And as I said, the list of the sins include adultery and murder and worship of pagan gods. Now, this uh, idea started to progress in Roman Catholicism. Have you all heard of like venial sins? Yes. This is the idea of venial sins in Roman Catholicism. Sins that you can't go to a priest and just confess them and receive forgiveness for. By the way, that's an errant uh, set of doctrine that is outside of orthodoxy, um, outside of orthodox uh, Christian understanding. But that's this idea that it's a specific sin. I will say that this, uh, although these three are the majority, this is by far the most uh, or the in the in the least adopted of the three possible interpretations. Okay, the next one is apostasy. Apostasy meaning that Christians turn from Christ and go the other direction. Now, this view is sin under death is not a specific sin like murder or whatever, but it is the denial of Christ. It is the renunciation of the Christian faith, and it's advocated by a huge number of scholars. And then the last one is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And how many guys have ever heard of John Stott? Has anybody ever heard of John Stott? Really 
really amazing theologian. Um, this is the one that he really put forth and has created a lot of adoption amongst a specific thread of theologians. And it's this deliberate, open-eyed rejection of known truth, as he says. That's uh, John Stott quote. And he says, this is what was uh, committed by the Pharisees when they attributed the works of Jesus to the works of the devil. So I'm just going to give you how you would support the last two positions. What, what, what is it that would make us think that he's talking about apostasy here? Well, the first is that it fits the context of the overall letter of 1 John. And whenever we're trying to understand a, a difficult passage, we want to get as much context as we can. What has he said before it? What has he said after it? Who is he talking to? What is the purpose of his writing? When we understand, it's like, if I wrote you a letter, you wouldn't take one phrase of the letter out and put it on your, on your wall and just live your life around that one phrase. That would be problematic. Uh, good thing none of us do that, right? We never go to Mardell and buy the little phrase and put it on our wall. No, we would not understand what am I talking about, right? What have I been saying before it? What am I saying after it? Who is it written to? Uh, what is my purpose? So if we look at several passages like, for instance, 1 John chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. It says, you know, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. What this tells us is that First John is written to Christians. The, uh, the, the recipients he expects the reader is a Christian, which would mean that when he's talking about a particular kind of sin, it would be a sin committed by a Christian. And we even see that in the passage, right? If you see a brother do blah, 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 right? So the context of the whole letter is it's written to Christians. He says, my little children, I am writing you these things. So he's telling you the purpose of his writing. It's almost like when you read his, his I mean, sorry, his gospel, John, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he says, I'm writing to you to these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing have life in his name. He says, that's my purpose of writing this gospel. Well, he says, my purpose of writing 1 John is so that you may not sin. So he's writing to Christians to warn them against particular kinds of sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also those of the whole world. And then in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 24 through 25, he gives us several warnings. He starts warning them against sin. He says, what you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If, big word, if what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He Himself has made uh, to us eternal life. If then, chapter 2, verse 28, so now little children, remain in Him. He's giving us a command, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. So, the first reason we would think it's apostasy is it's written to Christians, it's warning them to remain in Christ, and it's warning them to not sin. And then he talks about a sin that could cause a problem. That's the first thing. Fits the context. Next, it matches, his, I'm sorry, it matches the warning 
language that we find throughout the New Testament. You will see Paul say things like, lest you believed in vain, lest you should forfeit, etc., etc. The biggest passages where there are warnings are in Hebrews chapter 6, 10, and 12. I'll just give you a couple examples. Chapter uh, 6, verses 4 through 6, it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. This whole section of chapter 6 talks about those who were once believers but now reject God and reject Christ and what happens. Hebrews chapter 10, for if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. And then chapter 12, verses 16 through 25, make sure there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later, later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought it with tears because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blaze of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Instead... You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks, for if they do not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. So this section is basically making this analogy. It says, look, Esau, he had the covenant, and he rejected it just because he wanted to get he wanted to fill his belly. In a momentary act, he did that. He turned away. And the people who heard from Moses, they trembled in fear. If those people could be destroyed... How much more so, he's saying, is going to be the punishment for those who have heard directly from Christ, who have had the Holy Spirit, who have been enlightened, and then they reject Christ. So, that is the uh, apostasy position. Any questions on, on that position or the defense of that position? So, um, I was, early on I was thinking about Paul warning the church of Corinthians about the man sleeping with his mother yep the incest yep how we dealt, dealt with it so if we were to say that is a high-handed sin that can corrupt the whole church and not address mm-hmm. the thing yeah he, he didn't tell the full truth about where he was going to go to eat after church or whatever um versus something like this that can lead to spiritual death not just physical death so what does paul do he says kick him out of the church turn him over to Satan so that his body could be destroyed but that his soul would be saved. Mm -hmm. So we haven't really made a distinction between, even going back into Genesis, between spiritual death Mm -hmm. and physical death. Yep. So, of course, Adam and Eve died 
physically eventually, but they spiritually died immediately. Yep. So this is a, maybe a support of the position where Paul is emphasizing and John's, uh, um, their thought is, hey, when you have a specific sin that can lead to a death of the church spiritually, that you have to kick that person out and turn them over to Satan. It's not that this person has rejected Christ, right? Right. They're still a believer, but they're in, in this kind of sin. Right. And so we turn them over to Satan to save their soul. Um, uh, maybe it is or not a support of the blasphemy position. Um, but we're really going to have specifics, right? So. Well, so I, I get what you're saying, and it's great, really, really good thoughts. But so let me just tell you, like, if you look at the context of, of 1 John 5, 16 and 17, he says... If you have a brother that's committing the sin that leads to death, don't pray for them. Like the contrast is, if you have a sin that's not going to lead to death, you can pray for them because God can bring them life. But if they're committing the sin that leads to death, there's nothing you can do about that. Like, and that's why the people who support the apostasy position say that's exactly what Hebrews says. Hebrews says if you've already been saved and you've already been uh, baptized in the Holy Spirit and you have the truth and then you reject Christ, like you're, you're, you would be crucifying him again. You're kind of beyond the pale. And they, so they're saying the context of that 1 John passage fits the idea that it's ultimate spiritual death. Does that make sense? Yeah. So Paul, Paul would, in the example of the Corinthian church, he's not saying that uh, this person is committing apostasy. He's saying, get, get, get the cancer out of the church Correct. to save his soul. Correct. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So the apostasy position assumes that you can lose your salvation. Correct. Well, uh, can I say something? Yeah. It's a pet peeve of mine, but you don't lose your salvation. You reject. Yeah, you would forfeit it. You, you, you're saying, I don't want, if you got the ticket to get into heaven, you're turning it in. Correct. You don't lose it on the floor. You're Correct. turning it in. Correct. And, and the straw man, and I'm going to get into the opposite position here in a second and defend it too, show you how they defend it. But the, the straw man that is used against apostasy is, oh, so it's a works-based salvation then because if you sin, You've lost your salvation. So what happens if you lied and then you got hit by a bus? You don't have your salvation? That's a straw man. That is not what people who pr propose apostasy say at all because it's not about if you sin, you go to hell, and if you don't sin, you go to heaven. It's about that if you are in Christ, you are saved. Like he is the ark, using the Noah analogy. He is the whale, using the Jonah analogy. If you're in Christ, you're safe. But if you choose to get outside of Christ, you are not safe, right? You are, so apostasy is not, I have uh, lied, I have gossiped, I have committed adultery, any of those things. If you're still in Christ and you're trusting Christ for your salvation, and according to John, you're not in a perpetual state of sin where you're volitionally deciding to maintain sin as a lifestyle. If you're in Christ, you're saved. Apostasy is, like you said, I get out of the boat on purpose. I don't want the boat anymore. I want to be on my own. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, the opposite position would be held by people who would suggest that you have eternal uh, security. 
you have perseverance of the saints, as Calvin would have said. And the perseverance side would say, well, I can't accept that it's apostasy because I don't believe apostasy is possible. So the only thing left to me would be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, what these people would say is that John teaches that Christians, a true Christian, doesn't sin. So he can't be talking about Christians in this case because a true Christian doesn't sin. For instance, in 1 John 3, 9, everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. 1 John 5.18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. So, this, they would say, well, here we go, super clear. You can't sin if you're born of God, so clearly you couldn't commit the sin that would lead to death. So, that option is eliminated. And then the second thing they would say is that Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the one sin in Scripture we know can't be forgiven. So if that's the only way you don't get to heaven is that one sin can't be forgiven, that must, that it's, it's kind of like Sherlock Holmes, right? If we eliminate all the other options, what's left must be the truth. We've eliminated apostasy as an option. There's only one sin left in Scripture that's, that's a, a thing that can't be forgiven, so it must be that one. And just to quote that Scripture for you, it's Matthew 12. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. So, really, this is going to fall on the two divides that have divided Protestantism all the time, which is, do you believe it's possible to reject Christ, or do you believe it's impossible to reject Christ? Um, and that's kind of how it's going to fall. I would say that here's the conclusions we should draw from this. Number one, we should not be dogmatic because we don't know. So we don't need to like build a fortress around this and like start planting churches around this idea and like we're the church that's, you know, the church of the sin that leads to death church or whatever, right? Because we really don't know for sure what he's talking about. Clearly, it wasn't important enough for him to explain the terms thoroughly to us. It wasn't important enough for the first century church to teach on this in any abundance because we don't have any of those teachings. So we can just like not, not that we don't take any, obviously we take all scripture seriously, but we don't want to create our own little denomination around this idea. Um, sin is destructive and the consequences of sin should frighten us. You know, I've said many times, um, and this is the last point, regardless of theological differences, all Christians agree. Those who reject Christ will be cast out for eternity. This should make us shudder. You know, I, I think that it's silly, uh, really, pragmatically speaking, the whole perseverance versus not perseverance debate. Why is it silly? Because the end is the same. The people who think that you will never lose your salvation will tell you, if I reject Christ on the day of my death, I don't go to heaven. What they will say is, well, you were never really saved. The people who say you can reject Christ believe that if you reject Christ on the day of your death, you're not going to heaven, and they will say... You could reject Christ, but guess what? 
it's the same. If you're in Christ, you're saved. And if you're not in Christ, you're not saved. So we're just having a philosophical academic discussion, really, right? At the end of the day, we want to be in Christ. That's the takeaway. If you are in this room and you're not in Christ, you're in great peril. And I think all the time, I mean, you know, I don't doubt my salvation, but I, I do think a lot. Like, I say all the time, Lord, I am in you, okay? Just so we're clear, like, I am yours. I am 100% yours. I am trusting wholly, completely in your finished work on the cross um, because I want to be in Christ. I want to be found in Christ on the day that uh, the resurrection of the dead occurs. So that's really uh, my conclusions. Any thoughts or takeaways from that? Thanks for listening. We pray this has been edifying. If you've enjoyed the show, please give us a shout out on your favorite social media platform. Scott's username on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Scott Ross Online. That's Scott Ross Online, all one word. Also, please remember to go to scottrossonline.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, and discuss what you've learned with others. Until next time, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. God bless you.